Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a double homicide that occurred in 2016. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. Witnesses told police the woman became angry about what she saw, yelled at the homeless man, then started kicking him. The type of wound that he had was severe, was severe wound. And whether you agree with what I say or not, that's your own decision. I know God is, is my right way because I meet a lot of people here for a purpose. This is episode eight, The Meeting at the Tent. I'm your host, David Payne. People were killed and three wounded Tuesday night in a shooting near a homeless Deadly shooting in the jungle may be connected to a drug debt. Three teenage brothers were arrested and these 17, 16, and the youngest, just 13 years old. Sitting in a predominantly Samoan church, trying unsuccessfully to blend in. I'm here today to find people who might want to speak with us about the lives of the Tafalusia brothers before they were arrested. And as I settled in the back row, it seems like the preacher is talking directly to me. You have to know what's true and what's false. I don't ever need you to validate all I'm saying because I would believe what I believe. You got to know what's true. And you gotta know what's false. Come on, amen, somebody. Amen. I was beginning to wonder if I would ever know what was true and what was false. Had Uncle Francis truly met God and changed his ways? Had Juice escaped justice because Detective Cooper never tracked him down? Were the brothers guilty of murder? And how did this preacher seem to be able to read my mind? Who are you looking for? I'm just underline that. Who are you? I thought I had been looking for people who could help us understand what happened that terrible night in 2016. But like my search for the king of the jungle, maybe what I was really looking for was hope. And if you're on the fence about the teenagers' involvement in the jungle murders, or simply entertain doubts about their redeemability, you may need to look no further than the choir on stage. That's Olivia Yuhashi Taafalusia leading the congregation in songs about faith and forgiveness. You're a singer at the church. <laughs> quite, yeah. quite why, good. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Some days I think about it because I, for the most part, don't like to put myself out there. There's only like four or five of us that stand up there. That is the only place I'll do it. Why? I don't know. It kind of gives me a sense of peace knowing that because there's some people who that's all they need. That's all they need is praise and worship to get them through like a hard time. 
but it helps somebody out. Me knowing that, it like helps me get through my days. And I don't want to put words in your The half-sister of James and Jerome Tahafalusia, the two teenage brothers on trial for murder, can teach us all a lesson or two about overcoming circumstances not of our making, but of our birthright. Although she had a different mother than the boys, their common father was a bad influence on them all. So we share the same father. We have two different moms. Who were the influences on the boys growing up? So initially it would have been my father. And then, well, when I was in high school, the family dynamic in the house kind of like shifted. And then my dad did whatever my dad did. And my siblings went to go stay with their mom or whoever they could find to stay with. So then it was kind of like we only seen them. What their dad was doing was drugs and all the related extracurricular activities to support them. My father made some choices in his life. And so as a result of that, he was not in the right capacity to take care of my siblings anymore. Where is your father now? Do you know? Locked up. He's locked up. In Seattle. He violated his probation and they found out and they shipped him back here. And he's awaiting what they want to do for the rest of his sentence. And in Olivia's story, while we can hear a 24-year-old stoic acceptance of her father's choices, we can also hear a teenager's longing for paternal attention. I think when I was younger, I yearned for this. It seemed like them, like I really wanted this relationship with him. I wanted him to be there like I thought a father should, but I soon realized that that was never gonna happen. He was always picking someone else over us or something else. And so when he started doing drugs hardcore, it was really apparent that that is what he chose. I don't hear anger in your voice. I hear, is that right? What's yeah, I'm not angry anymore. Yeah, I was hurt about the situation, but I. what am I going to do? Keep crying about it? No, because you're not here. You're never going to be here. So we know our roots. We know where we come from. We know... Like, all the things, our grandparents, our father, our uncles, we know all of that. While Olivia both acknowledged and accepted her roots, I was definitely curious about the seeds and how far they fell from the tree. In the age-old debate of nature versus nurture, it seemed like the critical life choices made by the male Tafalusias were as predictable as they were predictive. They essentially followed the footsteps of my dad, because they didn't really know anything else. And so when they felt like they didn't have anyone here, they kind of strayed toward their mom. And their mom had always been on the street or living with other people. And so once that happened, it was kind of just a matter of where on the street are you living now? Are you in the jungle? Are you, you know, here or there? And so. What was it about your father that attracted the boys to follow that just it was his the primary male influence mm-hmm. they had and literally that's it i think that my older brother would have and while the boys would follow the patriarchal footsteps the girls fell in line behind their mother the stepmother of the tafalusia brothers with predictably better results my mom is from high point my dad is from la like we knew what the streets were but my when my mom started going to church and we really got grounded in that community It was like a turning point for us. Like, we know what our mom's been through. It was kind of just like for her, she didn't want her kids to have to 
repeat that whole cycle. So at her first chance, she took us out of whatever it was that she didn't feel was beneficial to our life. Emphasizing school and religion, Olivia's mother would leverage her Samoan culture for role modeling different behaviors and choices for the girls in the family. The Samoan culture is very like one way. And what is that? What is that one way? It's like family, God, and everything else will come after. There's just a lot of rules that you have to follow. And so like when we finally found this church, it was Easter Sunday. Me and one of my little cousins had matching outfits on. And then we went and then we never stopped going after that. I'm struck by how different your life is to theirs, just the trajectory of your life. You have, you've gone to college. Yeah. And you have a job. I had to. Tell us about that. I actually planned to stay here and take all my siblings in. But when I talked to my advisor in high school, she said that if I don't go anywhere, I can't help them go anywhere. So it was a matter of me being able to leave and then come back and show them, like, you can do it. Like, we can make it out. Because at one point, we all grew up And like her mother before her, Olivia's modeling would also trickle down to her two younger sisters. Her 18-year-old sister is a star volleyball player with a 4.0 average. That's who I have to set an example for because I see what my parents and my aunts and uncles and all them did. These are my siblings and my 14-year-old sister till this day. Like, everything I do, I'm like, if this isn't going to help her in any way, I have to take a step back and, like, figure out what it is. You know, one of the things I observed in the courtroom was how you would come with your siblings mm-hmm. and probably cousins, too. Mm-hmm. You were there a lot. Yeah, my two youngest sisters were actually there every day except for the first two. And so for us, it was just a matter of helping my brother see that we're still here for them. Like, everybody else might have turned their back on you, but we're still here. We're still fighting for you. We're still going to be in your corner regardless. Like, we don't care what happened. You're still our brothers. What you're describing is just kind of an unconditional love for your mm-hmm. siblings. And that's when one of the things my older brother was trying to stress to us a couple weeks ago. He was just like unconditional love. He just kept saying it. He was like, it doesn't matter what people do. Like Olivia's ability to rise up beyond her circumstances and to support her siblings found solid footing in her faith. But I knew that with unconditional love came forgiveness regardless of conduct. And if we were ever going to get to the bottom of what was right or just under man's law, we would first need to close the door on what exactly the boy's involvement had been that night. Olivia would refer to it as a mistake. It's like, yes, we know our brothers made a mistake, but they made a decision and now they're facing repercussions and it's not happy. And Did the boys have remorse and regret? I say they do. I think they're remorseful. I think that I wouldn't want to keep replaying that. Like, it's been so many years, but at the same time, they know they made mistakes. They know that their decisions were not in the best interest of clearly anyone. I think that now that it's being put into a bigger perspective for them, they understand that it takes a strong person and a strong mind to differentiate between what is wrong and what you personally feel is right and what is actually right.
Most listeners to this podcast will be clear-eyed enough to know that any involvement by the defendants was actually wrong. But the wisest and most experienced of you, especially parents, also know this truth. Teenagers' brains are not fully developed. They do stupid things, and they can be talked into stupid things. To my way of thinking, before standing in judgment on these boys, we would need to know if their mistakes were being triggermen, participants, observers, or pawns. Now, I want to go over an instruction that we call the accomplice liability instruction. This is instruction number eight. Of course, my thinking about this issue was just moralistic relativism. And unfortunately for the defendants, the law as it is makes no such distinction. In every felony criminal trial, the government has the incredibly high burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But the one clear advantage it does enjoy, the one that Prosecutor Mary Barbosa would need to lean heavily into, is the principle of accomplice liability. Instruction number nine talks about accomplice liability. A person is an accomplice if, with knowledge that it will promote the commission of the crime, he either solicits, commands, encourages, or requests another person to commit the crime, or aids another person in committing the crime. So if a person... Although the state's eyewitness testimony was conflicting at best, in the accomplice liability law, Barbosa got the opposite of a get-out-of-jail-free card. What that means for you is that you don't actually have to decide which defendant fired which gun at whom or who took what item from whom. If they were working Technically, she's right. Legally, these details don't matter if the boys were there to participate in a crime and someone got killed. They're guilty of murder. For example, if Jerome is an accomplice to the robbery He is guilty of murder of James Tran, even though James may have been the one who pulled the trigger. If they were working together to commit these crimes, they are guilty of each crime, regardless who pulled the trigger. And it is clear from what you heard. But whether they were the shooters or just there means everything to whether these teenagers are capable of rehabilitation or if we should just throw away the key. And before we render judgment on what exactly the boy's mistake was that night, we need to make one more slight detour to understand the ramifications of that assessment. For as we would learn, even the pretrial detention phase of this case involved conditions you might not wish on your worst enemies. Okay, the date is 9-24-18. I'm here with Travis Andrews, who is with Columbia Legal Services. Go ahead and give me your name. if you. Can. I'm meeting today with a man named Travis Andrews. Although Travis is yet another lawyer, he's the kind of lawyer that makes you think, if there are more of him, lawyers might seem like a better class of people. So my current role is uh, equity director here at Columbia Legal Services. Our goal is to give voice to people who are not typically heard and those who are not always at the table of conversation. So we focus on The disaffected whose voice he most recently represented were a class of youths awaiting trial as adults in King County, Washington, who were spending outrageously long periods of time locked in solitary confinement. 
And while he cannot say who all his clients are for privacy reasons, it's not too hard to put two and two together from the public records and figure out the class included the Toth Lucia brothers. So in October of 2016, we began to kind of get uh, information from families around juveniles who were being held in isolation for extended periods of time in the Regional Justice Center in Kent. And so we began to just start with the first individual who reported that he had been in isolation for 18 months. So in the beginning, you know, I just kept digging and kept talking to other youth. So that first youth referred me to three other youth. So how do they end up in isolation? So it would be very minute issues, like, you know, talk back. They don't always clean their room. Certainly have those issues with my children. But those types of issues within the Regional Justice Center would lead to youth being placed in isolation. So these boys have been held in pretrial detention for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what their life would look like? Right. So usually about five o'clock in the morning, they will be awoken to breakfast. For those who are in isolation, their meal was kind of slid through a slot in the door. After they eat breakfast, they would be typically allowed out of their cell for about 30 minutes, and then they would have school. School would last one hour, and then they would go back into their cells, and then they would have 30 minutes again sometime throughout the day until dinner time, and then they would be in their cells for the rest of the day. But the one constant is the fact that you're in this cell for 23 hours a day or 21 hours a day. And this is ongoing for months at a time. This is your life. It's hard to sleep at night and, you know, you're afraid because you're still a youth. Despite whatever your criminal circumstances are, you're still a child. And then every so often, you know, you have that thought like, if I just kill myself, maybe this will go away. And so you tie a sheet around your neck and staff comes and finds you and they send you to a holding cell where there's no bed, there's no water, there's only a toilet. From a layman's perspective, how would you describe the impact on these kids, on their mental health? It was difficult. You know, many kids had, you know, made attempts or threats to commit suicide because they just couldn't take the the mental stress anymore. There were at least two youth who described to me that they were gonna take pleas because they just didn't wanna sit in solitary confinement anymore. And while Travis and Columbia Legal Services would ultimately be successful in their lawsuit against King County, it would be largely moot for the Tafalusia brothers. These two have now come of age and have been moved into the county's adult facilities. And there, the brothers would be looking at similar conditions for the rest of their lives if convicted of the charges before them. So before we left Travis... I wondered if there was anything we should know from him about his experiences with these kids. What do you think the outside world should know that they don't know? There's more than what we know. There's a deeper, it's just a deeper side of things than what's presented in the media and even what's presented in court. These kids didn't just wake up and decide to do something one day. There is a story, there is a pattern, there is a history that has contributed to that at no fault of their own. At 15, 16, and 13 years old, there is something bigger and broader that we have not seen. And I challenge folks to not jump to those conclusions of this is just a bad person who deserves a bad consequence. I think there is something much broader to that story. I thought so too, and I knew exactly where to go to find that out. 
Somebody Somewhere will return right after this break. So, you know, the police had said that that robbery was planned by the boys to take care of a drug debt for their mothers, and that's not what happened. No. Tell us what happened. I just see it over and over and over again. There was nothing I would do differently. Tracy Bauer is fighting both the cold and the DTs as she engages in her daily battle to get clean. And while she's struggling today, the resilience she's built over the years makes me think she can succeed. I was pretty much a fighter my whole life. I'm not scared to fight, and I'm not scared to take a punch. They heal. It hurts just for a second. And even though it's only 4 p.m., we're fighting daylight as the sun begins its rapid descent into winter's night. Is that sun in your eyes? A little bit, yeah. Eyes that are blue on the outside, but no doubt black on the in, from all the death drugs, and tragedy they have seen. And as Tracy settles in to tell her full story of what happened before, during, and after the jungle murders, I can see clearly flashes of fear from within. Tell us what Um, happened. You know, there were seven of them there, and they were all Samoans, and they were coming in to take all of Fat's money and dope, and there was two dealers that Fat was meeting on his way in. And they were planning on getting all their dope and money. As Tracy begins recounting the details, the right place to start is with the plight of the two murder victims that night, James Tran and 45-year-old Janine Brooks. So walk us through, if you can, what happened that That night. night. You were in the tent watching Janine. We just got in the tent. We were just getting ready for her to lay down. We were talking because she had a ticket the next day out of there. So had you met her before? Yeah, I'd watched her sleep the first night she came in. We went out to lunch one day and shopping. That was probably the third time. Tell us about her. She was just really funny and fun and just really loving. This is Sunday night, so it's quiet. According to her mother, Brooks, who was living in Montana at the time, had been sober for six years when her husband left on an extended commercial fishing venture. Brooks decided to visit her former stomping grounds in Seattle, where she unfortunately reconnected with old habits and her old friend Fat Nguyen. And he had a friend of his with him who had relapsed, and we bought her a ticket to go home the next day. So he'd asked me to go and watch her sleep. She was happy to, like, come back and visit everybody. But at the same time, she had a message. She wanted us to go home. She wanted us to get out of there. She wanted me to leave. But if 45-year-old Brooks had the experience and self-awareness to know that she needed to get out of the jungle for her own good, then the other murder victim that night, James Tran, would be on the other end of the spectrum. And James was new. He just started coming up there, so he was like in training. He wanted to be fat security guy. He was really wanted to learn about it, and he really wanted to be there. How old was James? I don't remember. He was pretty young. Yeah. He was, he was in his, his early 30s, maybe. Yeah. Did you know him, or he was just new to the camp? So he was, he was new to the camp. He just showed up, and he was a customer visiting, and he really disliked it. And then he wanted to stay and hang out more with Fat and wanted to learn more. So he ended up just staying and, you know, being Fat's shadow for a while. 
He was worried about his family coming looking for him because previously he was actually reported missing by his family. But he was just having a good time in the jungle, not checking in with them. But unfortunately for James, the persons who were actually missing in action that night were the two camp lookouts, OG and Green Eyes. And um, we had a couple of lookouts, and I'm not sure why, because they, they went in their, their tents, and that's the only time we need a lookout when he's coming in to pick up all my money and drop off dope. That's when we need him the most. So share with us about what went down that night. Bad only came in one time a day, and that was to pick up my money and drop off dope, and um, he'd just come in, and we actually just took a hit, and I just heard pop, 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 and I'm thinking, I'm supposed to watch you. I can't leave you. And I could see she's scared. She's quiet. And I just said, I got to go. And I ran out. And I came around the corner, and there was a guy standing there. And I was yelling, fat, fat, fat. And I'm sure they didn't know. Unable to employ any type of self-preservation instinct, Tracy's decision to jump into the fray was costly. But when I came out there, Fat and Amy Joe had already been shot and James was already killed. And um, he took his mask off and told me to shut the fuck up and he shot me in my back and walked away, you know, went into my tent and killed this other woman. And so you, you saw who shot you? Yeah. And when you met with Cooper and you told him you knew the guy who had shot you, what was his reaction? He was like, concerned that I, I saw something different than what was told, but since these three boys had told him the story, they all had the same story, and they signed the confession and gave up the guns. That was a closed case. It is, in fact, easy to see how this case winded up where it did. To the cops, it probably did look like a simple, isolated robbery. But to quote legal warrior Travis Andrews, there's always more to the story a deeper side of things than what's presented in court. And we would need the one woman who had borne witness to the takedown of two kings of the jungle to fill us in on what that was. And they were planning on killing Fat and these dealers, anyone that got in their way so they could take over the cave without them trying to stop or interrupt our problem in the future. Before the Vietnamese had it, the Cubans had it. Before the Cubans had it, the Samoans had it. So they were trying to get back their jungle and get that revenue back in their pocket. And why did they take everybody out? Because they knew Fat would start up again and do well again, and they wouldn't be able to go in there and take it over if Fat's alive. What is that like to see the person who's shooting you? It's like shocking that this person that I know and that I've cared about and you sat there and visited with could just look at you right in your eyes and, and shoot you over some dope and money that would would have been handed over to him if they asked for it. We were trained, you know, basically from long originally that you don't hide your dope, you leave it out so they know what you got. And while Black Long Trong may have trained Tracy how the Vietnamese played the game, the Samoans had a different set of rules. And four of the elders in that community would pay a visit on Tracy at her new location in the jungle in the summer after the shooting. And what are you comfortable sharing about what happened afterwards with the people coming to your tent? 
yeah, this woman's that was responsible for it. I mean, had come to my tent to let me know what had happened. They wanted to know that I wasn't supposed to get hit, and they were sorry. And if there's anything they could do for me, you know, let them know. According to police reports and court testimony, the Samoans who came to Tracy's tent for the tete-a-tete were the elders in the jungle community, including a man named Charles, a man named Nelson, who is believed to be another of Juice's brothers-in-law, a Samoan elder named Uncle Ace, a woman named Effie, and none other than the reigning king of the jungle himself, Uncle Francis. It was Nelson, Francis, Ace, Charles, and Effie. They all came in my tent and they all told me that what happened that night, who was all there, who played what part, and assured me that because when she was killed in my tent, I thought they were trying to, you know, that was for me. There's no hard feelings. And, you know, we were working together. And they were helping me. If I ever needed anything, they were helping me. And one thing they really wanted to help her with was her memory. And just like Detective Cooper, they wanted to convince her she was mistaken about her identification of Juice as her shooter. Do you know or who orchestrated this whole thing? Who planned it? I do. There was a girl in this hotel room that was a friend of ours that was there when they were all talking about it. And she ran and told us about it when we got out of the hospital. And then um, one of the main guys that's in charge of the camp that was in the hotel room that planted as well has made sure he, he was seen by everybody that night at his camp so he wouldn't be a suspect. And why didn't the cops, why didn't they go after the other guys? There's no proof. There's no proof. And while Tracy would only identify Juice as her shooter, in their bid to clear Juice's name, the elders would tell her who allegedly rounded out the rest of the squad. Did they share with you anything about how the boys ended up being on that tape talking about why they did it? Yeah, they let me know who was all there and everyone's like job for the night and responsibility and... They let me know that I was right, that it wasn't the boys who shot me or killed Janine, but they were there. Let me know that I'd be okay. And if that was true, that the boys were there and not the shooters, as the state alleged, then where were we? The boys were there to observe and be lookout and make sure everything went down okay. But if caught, they would be the ones that would say it was them because they're the only ones young enough that would be able to live a life sentence and get out and have this money that had been saved up for them when they got out. And the boys essentially took the rap because why? To help out their Samoan family, to do a good thing, to provide for all of the family, which would be taking over the cave and selling. And they'd have money for them every week and money, a large sum of money when they got out. And they'd be the only ones healthy and young enough to be able to live in prison for that long, all their uncles that did participate wouldn't. And maybe now, after all this time, I could finally reconcile my intuition that something was wrong in that murder trial with Jody's belief that we were witnessing a con game. A con game with deadly consequences for the victims and lifelong consequences for the rest. 
Another day and we just trying to make a way now The hatred growing stronger every single day now I hear these rappers, they ain't trying to talk about it They ain't trying to get involved and they would rather catch a wave now Next time on the season two finale of Somebody Somewhere Mr. Leia Tagaga, were you present in the jungle the evening of January 26th, 2016? You realize there were seven of them there that night. Seven of them that night. Seven. What about the other four? Now, you say you are related to the boys through their mom, Lisa? Yes, sir. So do you feel like the fire was intentional? I do, considering that I'm one of the only key witnesses, and this is a week before the trial. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media in association with Warner Media. This podcast is created, written, and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Dayton Cole at Resonate Recordings. Editorial guidance provided by Mitch Gelman and legal services provided by Stuart Pearson. If you like this podcast, the best thing you can do to support us is to write a brief review on iTunes and share us on social media. You'd be surprised how these reviews can make or break an independent podcast like ours. Thank you for listening. Oh, yeah.